Hello and welcome back to CultureCast. This is Daniel Dalmonte coming to you again from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. We are entering winter. It's getting pretty cold. People are ice skating, uh, drinking hot chocolate, buying Christmas presents. It's actually rather nice. So I want to continue today with the discussion of the Enlightenment and the metaverse. Now, remember, the progression here is to try to connect this new phenomenon of the metaverse, which Mark Zuckerberg is developing, to certain intellectual trends uh, in the West, uh, emerging in Europe and America, that mark a significant paradigm shift. And really, it goes back to the Protestant Reformation. So we have to look at the shift from this Thomistic uh, slash Aristotelian synthesis of faith and reason. Okay, this is the medieval world. This is a medieval philosophy where you have uh, the authority of the church and the uh, authority of sacred scripture. And the philosophers uh, distill the meaning of sacred scripture. And so you have a powerful, powerful synthesis in which reason and faith are complementary. And philosophy is playing the role of a handmaiden, if you will, to theology. So you have this authoritative uh, set of writings in the Bible you have the tradition of the church, uh, which is the reflections and the pronouncements of the popes and the saints. And then you have uh, the philosophers like St. Thomas Aquinas, who distill the meaning of scripture, and that forms your worldview in the medieval world. So again, the idea of substance from Aristotle that which underlies the appearances, uh, the essence of a thing. A thing can change properties, but remain one substance. That idea from Aristotle's metaphysics comes into the idea of the Eucharist, where the priest consecrates the Eucharist and it becomes a new substance. All right, so we use philosophy, uh, the, the, the pagan or pre-Christian philosophy to articulate the doctrines of the church, which at the time is dominating all of Europe. Then you have the Protestant Reformation. And here you're going to have the uh, key idea of sola scriptura, where there's a rupture in which Protestants separate from the tradition of the church. So they move away from the encyclicals and statements of the Pope and the teachings of the saints, and they instead want to have a direct relationship to God, and they focus only on the Bible, sola scriptura. They want private interpretation of the Bible by individual believers. Okay, so you're now detaching individual reason from the institution of the church although you're still supposed to be obedient to the Bible, all right? 
Now, the Enlightenment is even more radical. All right? It continues this process of exalting human reason and setting aside uh, tradition and, and faith. Because what happens is that in the Enlightenment, you have this empowerment of human reason, this confidence that through our reason alone, we can know reality. We don't need the, uh, the elimination of faith. All right, so this idea of uh, the light of Christ, uh, this light of truth uh, from a God that can neither deceive nor be deceived, uh, this truth that is gifted to us as an extension of our cognition. Okay, that is now removed. There's this new hubris and confidence that uh, we can separate ourselves from tradition and from religious authority, and we can know the world with our unaided reason. And you see this happening very clearly and tragically in the French Revolution, where the motto is liberty, equality, and fraternity, okay? We're supposed to overthrow the elites. We're all going to be free. We're all going to be equal. And we're all going to be brothers. And this is not going to be compatible with a hierarchical structure such as you have in the Catholic Church, such as you have in the political monarchies. So you have these great democratic revolutions, people parading through Notre Dame uh, with prostitutes, uh, blaspheming against the old traditions and the old religions, and uh, exalt, erecting a cult of reason. A cult of reason instead of a cult devoted to and obedient to Almighty God. So what happens, again, is this progression from um, a philosophy that is reverent towards an objective order as it is articulated through revealed truth, to a philosophy that actually uses reason alone to know reality. And this precipitates amazing changes. It has political changes where uh, the old monarchies are uh, overthrown. Uh, you have America emerging as a free country, uh, as, a, as a escaping the colonial power of Great Britain. And you have tremendous progress in science. The fact that we can know the world through experiment, through observation, uh, allows us to uh, gain power. As Francis Bacon says, knowledge is power. And we can now uh, produce uh, the industrialized world. And that's what we're living in today. Now, we have to look at this carefully and see the progression all the way to now where we're in this very, I would say, tense and I would say toxic moment in history. Um, because you have this, it's, it's, it's kind of like a turning point. And it feels, um, it's very tense. It's very, there seems to be a collapse of, of, of authority. Um, there's confusion. Uh, and we have this uh, emerging new technology that is uh, 
very ambiguous in terms of its uh, possible risks and rewards. So you have things like people having a chip underneath their hand uh, to uh, be able to buy things. All right, you have uh, this culmination of science, which is born in the Enlightenment, and it's now advancing to the point where we think we can become transhuman. Uh, the Nietzschean drive to become the overman, the ubermensch, and to, for instance, try to enhance ourselves through technology so we can become immortal somehow, either digitally or even physically immortal. There are people working on this, these things, um, you know, producing children in a new way rather than just through uh, traditional um, reproductive methods you actually use artificial methods to choose the kind of baby you want. And now we are in now the magical world of Zoom, where because of the coronavirus, more and more things will be done online. And lo and behold, we have this tech giant, Mark Zuckerberg, who's always rooting on the official narrative of the coronavirus, rooting on lockdowns, rooting on vaccines. He is now introducing this metaverse. And the idea is that we are going to be in a virtual space where we can actually buy property, we can actually interact with other avatars, and um, it has risks and rewards. And, and so this is the culmination. I say this is a kind of a toxic uh, period because we're seeing the fruits, the ultimate fruits of uh, enlightenment thought. And it's um, giving rise to uh, this new wave of technology that might be just too far for a lot of people, okay? Um, having a digital identity, having digital currency, um, it, it, it gives tremendous uh, power to... Uh, the government, its ability to surveil and its, its ability to track people is unbelievably potent because of technology. Okay, now, uh, so you have the metaverse as this culmination of the enlightenment because now we're creating reality. All right, we're not beholden to an objective order that um, exists independent of us, the creation that we didn't create that we are, have to um, conform to. Remember, religion. I think there's, a, there's a, th a theme here in religion where we have to obey and conform to this objective order that we didn't create. Uh, so, you know, Islam is submission. Taoism, we conform to the Tao, the structure and the law of the universe. Um, Religion involves stepping outside of yourself. Now, the story of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden is so powerful because it has this dynamic of humanity and God and humanity having to respect God's creation and the structure and the law built into it but not really wanting to, being tempted to 
have knowledge of good and evil in themselves and to become like gods, as the devil says. So, we have to track intellectual history. We have to locate ourselves in the progression of history, in the ideas of history, humanity's pursuit of truth through philosophy and science, and we can understand our own situation. Now, the Enlightenment is not immediately preceding the metaverse. There's more happening before the metaverse that we need to study in future segments. However, I want to spend a couple segments really unpacking the Enlightenment and the key thinkers. Right, so you start with Newton. Newton uh, is the model for Enlightenment thought because of a couple simple postulates. Uh, number one, the universe is intelligible. The universe is not chaotic. The universe is structured according to rational laws. And because it is intelligible, we can come to know it. And we do not need revelation or faith to know it. The universe is perfectly compatible with our reason. Think about some of the doctrines in Revelation, such as the Incarnation, where God becomes man. Uh, the Resurrection, uh, where Christ rises from the dead. These are offensive to our reason. They don't, they're mysterious. Um, how can an infinite God become a human? How can someone who's dead rise again? All right, so it seems like Revelation has somewhat of a irrational structure. Whereas with the Newtonian science, you see reality as having this very intelligible structure. You can reduce all the movements of the planets to a few simple mathematical formula. And you therefore have this aspiration to develop what in Latin is called a scientia, uh, S-C-I-E-N-T-I-A, scientia. And uh, the idea is to have a complete deductive system with your reason alone, to have a system that is like a geometrical proof, starting out with these self-evident first principles and then reasoning deductively to deduce all the basic truths of your reality. So you see this in the great rationalist systems of the Enlightenment. It really starts with Descartes, okay? So the idea of Descartes is to deduce, to have a sciencia of all of reality with reason alone. We're not gonna start with faith. We're not gonna accept the authority of the church and the Bible. Um, we're going to just derive everything from reason. And whatever can't be proven rationally needs to be just set aside, okay? So Descartes begins with this methodological doubt where every single thought he has is comes before the scrutiny of reason 
If it can be doubted in any way, it must be set aside. And he needs to find this foundation of absolute certainty with his reason alone. Now, what does he find? He finds that he can doubt pretty much everything, even the idea that 2 plus 2 equals 4, because there could be, let's say, some kind of demon tricking us, making us think that 2 plus 2 equals 4 when it actually equals 5, let's say. Now, you can doubt pretty much everything but the fact that you are thinking. This is where cogito ergo sum comes from. Cogito ergo sum. It comes from the idea that because I think, therefore I am. I cannot doubt that I am thinking. Because doubting that I am thinking is itself a kind of thinking. All right? So you reach this foundation where you know with absolute certainty that you yourself are thinking. And this is the basis of your knowledge. You reach this ultimate point where you know that uh, at least you are thinking. And so from this, Descartes distinguishes the mind from the body. And so the mind must be something distinct because we can be absolutely certain of its contents, whereas we can doubt the body, like we could be dreaming or we could be hallucinating about our body. Think of like phantom limb syndrome, where people think they have a limb when they really don't. They still feel pain or they itch uh, on a limb that has been amputated, okay? So we can doubt our body, but not our mind. Therefore, the mind and the body are distinct substances. That's Cartesian dualism. Now, what happens is that uh, you have a classic problem arise from here. If your fundamental point of orientation in the world is your own thinking, because if your consciousness is central, if your consciousness is this indubitable point, this Archimedean point, well, how can you be sure that your representations of which you are aware actually capture the nature of reality? How can you be sure that your ideas actually resemble the way the world really is? Because all you have access to are the representations in your own mind. How can you get out of them? How can you extricate yourself from them and verify some kind of link between objective reality, things in the world, and your own thoughts? So this becomes a problem in the enlightenment of being able to establish the objectivity of our empirical knowledge. How do we know for sure that what we claim to know through our representations in our mind actually captures what is ultimately real? All right, so right away you see cracks starting to form where you have tried to form a, a sciencia with your reason, and then you start to wonder whether your representations, as certain as they may be, actually uh, mirror reality. Uh, certainty would be a psychological state. You feel certain psychologically, but does that mean that you actually are grasping the real world? 
All right, so um, this move to create a ciencia with reason alone immediately starts having cracks. And these cracks are going to give birth to later uh, movements. Okay? So a tree is known by the fruit it bears. We know what the tree is based upon the consequences that it gives rise to. How are these thoughts, this, this great rupture, how is it evolving? How is it impacting human life? We need to really analyze this. So another rationalist, another guy who uses his reason alone to try to find out the nature of reality is Spinoza. Okay? So Baruch Spinoza uses another uh, geometrical deductive method, like a geometrical proof, right? Where you're trying to prove that a, a triangle has angles that add up to 180 deg degrees. Or, you know, trying to prove that the two lines have the same uh, angle with another line that's parallel. Well, guess what? Spinoza uses this method of reason alone to build up an ontological monism. So for Spinoza, there's only one substance in the world. Okay? And this substance has two aspects. Uh, it Meaning it... it it takes on different forms depending upon how you consider it. But really, it's still just one substance. And this one substance is either God or nature. All right, so there's nature, which is the world of, of the sky and, and the grass and the natural world that physics studies. And there's God, which is the object of religion. Now, Spinoza is very controversially claiming that there is one substance that appears in two different ways, God and nature, okay? And so God and nature are identical. They are the same thing. This is called pantheism, and it is not the same thing as Christianity or Judaism, for that matter, or Islam, because for these three monotheistic faiths, God is transcendent. God is above nature. God is prior to nature. God and nature are not the same. All right? So Spinoza has this monistic, meaning one, mono, meaning one thing, pantheistic system, pan, meaning all is God. God is in all things. God is imminent, not transcendent. Now, Spinoza is not an atheist, but I hope you can see how this system uh, starts to evolve into a kind of atheism. Why? Because God and nature are the same thing. Uh, God is not transcendent. So all you have is the natural world, and it can appear under the guise of God, but there's nothing, really be there's nothing beyond the natural world. There is no transcendent God. All right? So this is a rationalist system, and you're seeing, again, this rupture where this kind of thinking would not be tolerated in uh, medieval philosophy uh, because it would be married to Revelation. And um, Revelation tells us that God exists in the beginning by himself. God is transcendent. God is prior to creation. All right. Another great rationalist is Leibniz. So the Enlightenment uh, springs up in slightly different ways in different European countries, also in America. 
So this is the German Enlightenment, and again, the attempt to create a scientia, which is a fully rational system of reality. You can know reality through your reason, and you can deduce it. Uh, you don't need to have experiences. You can just deduce it like a mathematical system. You don't need to have experience or revelation, certainly not. You can simply deduce reality from, uh, for instance, for Leibniz, it is the principle of sufficient reason. The principle of sufficient reason states that everything that happens must have a sufficient reason that fully accounts for it, that is a sufficient basis for its existence. So things can't just come into existence for no reason. We cannot pull the rabbit out of the hat miraculously. There must be a sufficient reason for every event. The universe, again, is intelligible. The universe makes sense. It conforms to our intelligence and our reason. So there must be sufficient reason for everything. Everything has basically a complete explanation for its occurrence. And now you have Christian Wolff, who is a great philosopher also of Germany, who has an influence also importantly on Immanuel Kant, who is a very crucial, perhaps the greatest Enlightenment thinker and perhaps the greatest philosopher of recent memory. So Wolf thinks that we can derive the principle of sufficient reason, everything must have a sufficient cause, a sufficient explanation from the, the more fundamental principle of non-contradiction, which is the idea that P and not P cannot be true at the same time. This is a foundational logical principle. We just cannot understand how you could have P and not P, where P is just a variable standing for any proposition. Any, any proposition. We cannot understand how that could happen. That, um, and so that becomes this uh, uh, foundational basis that Wolf uses to develop his own a priori system of ontology, this fully rational um, science of being. All right. Now, this rationalist endeavor, and again, cracks are appearing. Okay. This is how thought evolves to get to the metaverse. The fully rational system actually ends up becoming an endless battlefield. This is where Kant comes in. He sees that different philosophers try to deduce the nature of reality from their reason alone. And they end up getting into these uh, contradictory positions. Uh, so reason can't really guide us to complete certainty because look at metaphysics. It is a battlefield of contradictory ideas. People claiming that we don't have free will. People claiming that we're fully determined. And then people claiming that we do have free will. People claiming that there is a necessary being at the foundation of things. People claiming that there is no such thing as a necessary being. This is the crisis of metaphysics. This is, way, this is, this is where enlightenment thought comes up short and must evolve. Now, the age of reason contrasts with the age of 
religious faith. So we're trying to use unaided reason to, tr- to understand reality independent of faith. Let's just recenter ourselves in this fundamental paradigm shift. We're in the age of reason. We're using reason to find a scientia with unaided reason, but we're also using senses. We're also using experiment and induction. Induction is where you take um, data and you accumulate data and you build generalizations, okay? So you have an empirical strain where people are using their senses and data to build knowledge. And this is where philosophy becomes very, very observationally based. You get into experimental science and you end up um, actually moving away not only from religious faith, but also from metaphysics. That once you have observation, you can use induction to build up general laws and knowledge is power. You can use these general laws to industrialize and to invent new things. And you don't need, um, or at least you don't think you need, theology, um, which gives you the uh, full picture of the origin of the world that you're studying. Nor do you need metaphysics, which are these um, foundational and universal first principles that you know through your reason alone. So there, there are these first principles that you know um, with your reason alone. Well, if you're using observation and experiment, you can just bypass that, okay? Now, it's very interesting that um, we have this scientific method. That's what I'm talking about. Using experiment observation to build generalizations and not using uh, pure reason to find some kind of metaphysical uh, foundation or theology. Uh, Just learning things by trial and error. Well, science has evolved into scientism, where you have this idea that uh, the scientists make these unchallengeable proclamations, almost like they're the new priest. And they don't test their pronouncements through trial and error and data. They just utter these proclamations and everyone must obey. Everyone must follow along. All right. Um, There's this tendency, uh, like for instance, uh, we have reached a consensus and the science is settled. You hear this a lot on certain issues. Uh, This is maybe a a perversion of the original inspiration of science, which is to always test things. Just keep gathering data. The data might tell a different story. You may interpret the data differently. All right, science is not a priori um, proclamations that cannot be ever refuted. Okay, so... Newton and um, Bacon, another figure here, uh, they use induction, which again is building up data and finding over time in the data uh, general laws. And so they reduce multiplicity to unity through induction. You have all these different pieces of data, and over time they crystallize into a pattern that you can identify. 
All right. So this is the development of the Enlightenment tradition. Uh, with Newton and Bacon, you have a bottoms-up procedure. It's not starting with these absolute truths of metaphysics. It's starting with these uh, simple observations that are accumulated over time and become general laws. All right? And so we have this uh, great achievement of enlightenment thought. It's a great rupture. Um from the previous tradition. It's kind of a culmination of the Protestant, Protestant Reformation. It's going to have political consequences as, as well, but it has some cracks. And I'm going to leave you with this, all right? They're trying to make a full system of reality through reason alone, through human thought alone. We can have a Newtonian system, a, a system of Spinoza, a system like Descartes, a Cartesian system, or a Spinozistic system. But there are some issues. There's cracks that make this thing evolve. Now, what are the cracks? Number one, starting with the mind. This is the way of ideas. The mind is most certain. We're not going to um, start with fundamental postulates of faith or of metaphysics. Start with the mind, all right? Descartes says that the mind is alone, indubitable. Well, if you start with the mind, then you have to wonder whether your mental representations actually capture reality. So you have some skeptical questions starting to emerge. Do my representations really match what exists beyond my mind. And number two, you have some other difficulties uh, developing. You have certain systems such as uh, Berkeley's idealism, which try to deal with this problem of the objectivity of our empirical knowledge, whether our representations match up with reality. And Berkeley says that there are no material objects. There are no objects that are independent of the mind. All we know are ideas. So he develops an, an idealism, which says that all we have are mental contents, and the idea of a material thing that exists apart from the mind, that's not an idea, it's material, is actually incoherent, and all that we have are ideas. Now, you have these uh, rationalist systems 
that try to form a fully deductive, almost a mathematical proof, but they end up in contradictions. All right, so what happens when human reason tries by itself to grasp the nature of reality? Well, you have this problem of objectivity, which Barclay tries to solve with this idealism, which seems very counterintuitive, the idea that there's nothing but ideas and there is no material reality. So if there's no material reality, then there's nothing to match up with. And therefore, the problem of objectivity of your ideas goes away. You also have the problem of a rationalist system that purports to be a proof where you, for instance, prove from the principle of non-contradiction, then the principle of sufficient reason. You try to prove that, but you find that other thinkers with equally compelling rational arguments come up with the opposite metaphysical conclusion. And so metaphysics is instead of being this science is a battlefield. And so with this, we're going to see how the Enlightenment is going to evolve and give rise eventually to our current state. So thank you so much for listening. Please tune in again. And I'll be continuing with, with part three in this great series on the Enlightenment and the Metaverse. Hello all and welcome again to CultureCast. This is Daniel Dalmonte. And I'm coming to you today from Philadelphia again. And it's unusually warm today. It's uh, the first couple of days in December. And I want to continue with this theme of the metaverse, which is this new creation by Mark Zuckerberg. It has not yet unrolled, but it's getting a lot of attention. I guess he advertised for it during the Super Bowl. And so he is investing a lot of money in it and he is transitioning Facebook into this virtual space, this virtual embodied internet where we have an avatar and we move through it. It's already being anticipated in games like Fortnite where you're in this virtual world. So it's philosophically interesting. I'm tying this into the history of ideas, okay? and. I'm connecting it to a crisis that occurred. Uh, a crisis that occurred in the West in the 17th and 18th centuries called the Enlightenment. And the very term is rather ten tendentious. Um, was it an Enlightenment or was it a kind of unhealthy liberation? Because we left the, maybe if you might think, comfortable world of medieval philosophy. Really, the process began before uh, with Luther and the Protestant Reformation, where the unity of the Catholic Church, which had uh, pervaded all of Europe, was broken. And man was left on his own with this doctrine of sola scriptura. Luther wanted to separate from the 
authority of the church. He thought it was a corrupt form of mediation and we should go directly to the word of God. The problem is, though, that leaves the individual unmoored. Uh, the, the structure of authority is broken. And what happens is that you get this endless pl- proliferation of new versions of Protestantism to the point where you have um, division in Christendom and tens of thousands of new Protestant sects. Okay, So there's a lack of agreement because everyone's looking at the Bible, trying to get to the um, ultimate truth, not trusting a human, a human mediator. The discipline of the church is broken. There's a crisis in authority with the Protestant Reformation. Now, with the Enlightenment, it's moving from the age of faith to the age of reason, where reason is set up as the ultimate authority. And people were very excited. Why? Because you have this confusion and this disarray from the Protestant Reformation. Once you open that Pandora's box, it's like you, you can't. You have a whole host of problems crop out, right? Uh, people disputing over theology. People not knowing whom to trust. You have the Lutheran Church, the Presbyterian, Calvinist. Uh, people's whole understanding of the purpose of human life is upset, all right? And so the new excitement of the Enlightenment is to have reason be the authority. And last time we talked about these rationalists who use their reason in the hopes of trying to grasp the structure of the world. And they use reason alone, okay? So someone like Descartes, he's using reason alone to create an entire system of philosophy, of metaphysics. So he can deduce the truth without any kind of revelation. You don't need any faith. You can just use your reason alone to find out um, an ultimate ground. Uh, uh, It's called foundationalism. The view that there's this ultimate principle of truth on which you can build like a geometrical system, a whole metaphysics. So for him, it's cogito ergo sum. I think, therefore, I am. That is the foundational component in Cartesian epistemology. Now, uh, we have other rationalists. I mentioned this last week. Uh, People like Christian Wolff in Germany uh, using these basic principles of reason, like the principle of non-contradiction, the principle of sufficient reason, using these basic principles to, again, deduce through reason alone a whole metaphysical system. Uh, They did not need revelation. They did not need to refer to authority as you have in the Aristotelian scholastic synthesis of Thomism, Thomistic philosophy, uh, where you have uh, reason wedded to revelation, the tradition and the scripture that the church guards. Okay, so that's all broken up. And humanity now is using reason thinking that they can use reason to grasp the nature of the universe because the universe is is intelligible. The universe is not chaotic. The universe is not just irreducible to certain basic principles. This is the the, the, uh, tendency to reduce the many to the one. E pluribus unum. To reduce the many, the variegated phenomena of our world. Reduce this many to... uh, 
one, if not one, at least a few very simple basic principles. Uh, and this is uh, culminates in the scientific achievements of Isaac Newton, where he reduces the motions of the planetary bodies to a few very simple principles of physics. And this is seen as the edifice representing the Enlightenment. We can know reality through our reason. Reason is the authority. We don't need revelation. We don't need the endless theological disputes that opened up as a result of, uh, of Protestantism, tearing countries apart. We do not need that. We have our reason we can think for ourselves, and we can know the truth. Now, I talked about last podcast how there are these cracks appearing in the rational project of the Enlightenment. You have issues like, so this is the way of ideas, starting with our, our, our basic representations. Descartes says, I think, therefore I am. So the starting point is his own ideas, okay? When you start with your own ideas and representations, the problem is how do you guarantee that they actually correspond to the real world, all right? Because if all you have are your ideas, what standard do you have apart from your ideas to see if they really are veridical, if they really are true, okay? Uh, so you have this problem of skepticism. You have this issue that's creeping in that maybe reason by itself cannot be your authority, okay? And so this is starting to lead to a crisis. And we have the specter now, the specter of skepticism. A specter is like a ghost. It's the specter of skepticism, which Hume, David Hume, introduces. He's a great philosopher, but also a disturbing one. And he is someone who challenges this idea that we can use our reason unaided to know the way reality is. And I want in today's podcast to go over two arguments from two major works of Hume, where he uh, throws a missile, proverb proverbially speaking, of course, he throws a missile at this rationalist dream of the uh, Enlightenment scientist. Because remember, the Enlightenment emphasizes also scientific progress, okay? And which they were good at. They precipitated the modern technological world, all right? And now we're in that, and we're getting to a point where technology is taking over and becoming a threat to the point where it might actually overpower humanity. Think of the metaverse sucking people in. There's gonna be a good chunk of people who get addicted to this metaverse. They don't wanna leave it. And maybe you have people actually starving to death or people getting their sexual gratification from the metaverse in very disturbing ways when really our sexuality should draw us out to meet and interact with other people and produce new life ultimately. Now, um, let's talk about Hume. What are these um, skeptical problems? 
Well, the core of these, the skeptical breakdown comes from Hume's notion of causation. Think how important causation is to the Newtonian worldview. That worldview is structured according to laws. You have objects moving in very lawful manner. And they are lawful insofar as they have this necessary connection. So when A happens, B happens. That's a scientific law. Okay? So there's this very strict causal connection that is an integral metaphysical component of a Newtonian worldview, which again is this paradigmatic culmination of Enlightenment thought. Hume says, whoa, whoa, whoa. What are your grounds for this idea of causation, which again is necessary, necessary con connection. If A, then B. It's not really a cause unless there's a law. All right. Uh, causation is a regular relationship. Hume asks us, what really is your ground for that? Take a look at a loaf of bread, for instance. You look at it and we have a series, a, a, a set of impressions. Okay. Uh, the bread has a certain shape. The bread maybe is warm, feels, feels certain, a certain way, has a texture, a temperature. It tastes a certain way. It tastes good. It tastes uh, floury, doughy. All right. Um, you have these different aspects of the bread. And we think that the bread nourishes us. It nourishes our body. All right. But the impressions that the bread makes and what Hume calls these secret powers are distinct. We have, on the one hand, the impressions of the bread. And on the other, we have this idea that there is some principle of causality that causes nourishment when the bread is ingested. But you can't just detect that connection as an impression of the bread, okay? You can't look at the bread and deduce from it that it's going to nourish you, all right? You can't use reason to guarantee that there is this necessary relationship between bread and nourishment. Why? Because it's not a necessary rational connection. I can think of bread. I can think of bread and conceive of it as not nourishing me. All right. Maybe there's a there's there's a possible world where bread does not produce this specific result where bread is just not nourishing. All right. So you can't just use logic. It's not something that's like um, built in by definition. So you could have like um, a, a triangle. A triangle has angles that add up to 180, 180 degrees. This is necessary. This is by definition. Uh, this is something that is guaranteed by logic. 
I can't think of a triangle that does not have this attribute of angles that add up to 180 degrees. So uh, the bread, I think you can see, is different. Uh, you can think of the bread as not producing this kind of um, result. Same thing with a candle. Does a candle, by logic, produce heat? Okay, does it logically, can you think of a candle that does not produce heat? Maybe there's a possible world where uh, the candle does not um, produce heat. Okay, so this is Hume's case. And so what is the basis for causation? What is the basis for this idea that um, there are these causal links unifying the natural world? Well, the basis is custom. Custom is a psychological uh, feature. It's a feature of our psychology. All right. And what he means is that we just associate things. We associate bread with nourishment. We don't fully understand how it does it. It's a secret power that it has. He means by that this, this hidden um, capacity that we can't see as far as impressions and it's not logically deducible from the bread itself, but it's just through associations that um, this this uh, occurs. They may say, "Well, well, bread has uh, these um, nutritious properties. It has carbohydrates. It has flour and wheat and fiber, and that we know is nutritious." But again, is that by definition? Um, that bread just logically has these properties that generate nourishment? Or is that just through repeated experience? Through repeated experience, you have these two events that are conjoined. They co-occur. But you don't necessarily know that there's this lawful, necessary connection between them. There's not this strong metaphysical sense of causation uh, binding them together. So all we have are these psychological customs or habits where we think of the world in this as these in, in associated ways. Okay. And so the world is like this, um, you know, is kind of comes unglued in Jungian skepticism. It comes unglued. It's like a, it's like a light show where you have these little points of these little data points and uh, for the course of your life, they've been associated, okay? And um, it may be the case that, that it changes. You, you, know, you, don't, you just don't know. You don't know that um, maybe one day the candle will not produce heat or light. Maybe the bread will not nourish you. You don't fully understand the way it works. So maybe one day it doesn't have the same effect because all you have is just custom. You have this repeated experience which does not guarantee the future, okay? So the world comes unglued. This is not the Newtonian world of tight, lawful connection. It's not the Newtonian world of A causes B always and forever. It is this loose world of associations. Now, here are some arguments that Hume gives uh, for uh, distrust in the rational project 
of the Enlightenment. One comes from a treatise on human nature, one of his most famous books. And this argument is basically a war of attrition on human reason. And it's a war of attrition because Hume recognizes that all we really have when it comes to our natural, uh, our, our account of the natural world, are probable, probabilistic judgments. All that we really have are these judgments of probability. We think with some likelihood that the future is going to be like the past in terms of its associations, but we can't be sure, all right? So we have probability. And even when we apply in demonstrative reasoning, Hume uses this phrase, demonstrative reasoning. He means logical deduction, okay, where you have um, truths by reason, not by observation. Like I said, the triangle with, with its angles. You know that by logic, by definition, by the very concept of a triangle, you know the angles must add up to 180 degrees. Now, um, even when you use this kind of logical reasoning, you apply it, you apply it in ways that can be erroneous. How many times have you made a mistake in your own life where you have a certain logical principle and you apply it to a concrete case and you err? So there's always this possibility of error. And so probability immediately creeps in, even when we're applying demonstrative judgments. And so we have to try to control for this. And how do we do, how do we control for this possibility of error? When we look at the history of our, of our judgments, how often have we been wrong? So like, let's say we're right eight out of 10 times, okay? We look at the history of our judgments. We look at our own, um, our own history of success. We assess the intellect. So first we're looking at the object to see how accurately we're assessing the object. Then we assess our own intellect. And this also is probabilistic because the intellect's function is to produce truth. That's the job of the intellect, to find out the truth. But what can happen to the intellect is that bias and error causes the intellect to stray from the truth. So even as we probe over our history of success in judgments, this survey itself is afflicted and limited by probabilistic judgments. So we have to correct the first judgment of the object, of the thing in the world, by a judgment that is self-reflexive, that studies the understanding, and both evaluations are subject and limited by probability. And so what happens is that we have to keep going deeper and deeper to control for this probability. So uh, how do I know that my own evaluation of my faculties is not afflicted by bias? Well, I look at other situations in the past. I, I look at others current situations where I'm trying to see if I'm really biased or not. 
And of course, you could be so blinded by your bias that you just fail to be aware of it. Sometimes we just take things for granted that are actually quite peculiar. And we think that they're just the, the absolute truth when really it's just our own partial bias on things. And so what happens is that no matter where we turn, we're going to find more and more probability. Okay? And the more chance you have of error, the more chance of error goes up. And the great quote is, no finite object can subsist under a repeated decrease in infinitum. If you have a repeated decrease, uh, meaning uh, probability of error keeps reducing the chance of success, eventually the whole edifice is going to collapse. And so ultimately, because of these successive estimations of probability, Hume says there is a total collapse of belief and evidence. So think of that. You go from the Newtonian worldview, the optimism of the Enlightenment, to now this pessimistic view of exponentially reinforcing probability, leading to ultimately a complete collapse of belief and evidence. What are we basing our judgments on? Just pure, raw habit. There is no rational basis. Now, I want to talk about it now. Another argument you makes that is very snarky and he's poking a huge hole and again, throwing missiles at the Enlightenment. Okay? And um, this missile is directed at induction. What is induction? Well, induction is when you use um, a set of data and make generalizations based upon that data. Okay? So you're taking like a, a sample of data, like um, uh, whenever I have tea right before bed, I don't sleep. Let's say that's true. And it happens again and again. And so you conclude that the future will be the same. The future will resemble the past. Okay? And again, Hume shows that the causal link there is um, not really uh, metaphysically irreducible. It's not metaphysically robust because it's just an, associ it's just an association. So we don't really understand the power or the principle by which the T actually um, achieves this, uh, this result. All we have are these repeated experiments. We can't guarantee, we can't guarantee that this will not have a different result or no result in the future. So uh, induction seems problematic. How do we know the future uh, resembles the past? Because induction relies upon what's known as the uniformity of nature. Uh, we know the, that the future will be the same as the past, which will allow us to make generalizations because of uniformity. So nature is uniform. 
That's the presupposition of the Newtonian worldview. If nature is not uniform, how can you have absolute laws of nature? Now, Hume says induction is something that is inherently circular and it is not based upon reason. Okay, so this is very profound. What happens is that you try to use your reason demonstratively, okay? And you try to use logic to prove that uh, the future must resemble the past, but you can't, all right? Because there's no logical necessity that bread produces nourishment. That's not a um, conceptual necessity in the same way that uh, the angles of a triangle add up to 180 degrees. Okay? So, um, you can't get it through logic. So the only other way to get it would just be through observation. Okay? So you have logic and then observation that Hume calls it uh, kind of awkwardly moral uh, reasoning. What he's talking about is just the observation of different events. Okay? And so we have uh, moral reasoning and demonstrative reasoning, uh, which are relations of fact. Moral reasoning has to do with relations of fact, not logic, which could be other than they are. All right, so it could be the case that candles don't produce heat, okay? Um, the fact that they do is just the way our experience has been, okay? So now, um, how do we establish this bridge that is the basis for induction? The bridge between future and past? Because if the future is different from the past, then you can't make generalizations and projections from the past into the future. Well, you can't do it by logic. You can't do it demonstratively. And you also can't do it through moral reasoning because that would be circular. So to say the future resembles the past, okay? Because in the past, the future resembles the past, okay? You are presupposing what you're trying to prove. You're using induction to try to prove induction. So it's like saying that every time I dropped an apple in the past, it fell. To prove that every time I dropped an apple in the future, it will fall. You're using the same principle to justify the same principle. You're assuming as a premise that is the future resembles the past to justify your conclusion. That's the fallacy of begging the question. Petitio principi. Okay, petitio principi, which is begging the question. It's a fallacy of circularity, where you assume as true in the premise of your argument the conclusion you are trying to actually prove. And so what Hume shows, now, now, now think about this carefully. Because it ha you have to think about it to get it. Because you're gonna, you're, you're, we're so 
dug in in this idea of future resembling the past that we can't separate it. So we don't really know logically. There's no logical guarantee that the way that the world works is going to continue in an ongoing way in the future. Okay? Maybe there's some deeper principle at work that will cause bread to not nourish us in the future. Okay? Maybe there's some deeper principle that makes it the case that um, light does not produce heat in the future. And there is no logical necessity and we don't observe this necessary link. All we observe are associations. So you don't observe the necessary link. How can you observe that? You just see things. You, you just see two things happening. Okay. You don't have a guarantee. The structure of reality is going to keep yielding the same results. All you have is this experience of the of the of repetition over time. Okay. And you're going to use that to try to prove that the future is going to be the same and, and also be repetitive and the future repeats the past, but you don't know that that's not rationally based. All you have is a habit that's psychological and it could be otherwise. You don't know for sure. Okay. And I mean, for instance, Emerson says that, um, we observe a general, what we think of as a general law. We think we see a general law, but really it's just a particular feature of an even more general law. So you think you understand the way bread works. Well, there's an even more general law that we don't see yet that shows it to be much more sophisticated than we think it is. Emerson says that the world is not made of facts. The world is made of a law. Uh, so all the events that we see are changing and shifting according to a law that is still not fully manifest. So what is it that we have? We don't have reason, according to Hume. We have our imagination. We associate things and we imagine them that they're going to be the same. We have a custom. We have a, psych a, psycho a psychological um, quirk, really, that we just tend to associate things and we um, see how they're related and we think that's going to stay the same. And maybe it's useful for, useful for us, but certainly we don't have this um, perfect deductive sciencia is the word I used in the last podcast, which is this perfect deductive systematic edifice of rational knowledge. We do not have that. We have just this brute sense of association. And so I think this is a very powerful episode. I have uh, introduced Hume to show cracks in the Enlightenment and how the Enlightenment is going to evolve into later ideologies. But we need to stay in the Enlightenment. I want to stay in the Enlightenment for, for a good amount of time because it's so crucial um, 
for our contemporary uh, world. Um, the world right now is in such disarray, and it's been in disarray for many decades. And uh, you may be surprised that the disarray is philosophically rooted. I really believe that at the root of this is a philosophy. And we need desperately to unpack it and to expose its errors. So thank you for listening and um, make sure you, you tune in for future episodes.